Hello, Bungers of the world. This is BungaCast. Welcome back. It's Sunday, the 4th of September. My name is Alex Okin, and I'm here with George Hoare. Um, George is uh, shortly going to be talking to someone about La Macronie, Macronistan, um, and, uh, and, and the wider convulsions in France. Um, listeners might want to check out uh, recent episodes if you want some further background and further discussion of, of France and the elections. We have an episode with Chris Bickerton, which is episode 257. And episode 256 as well with Charles de Veden, uh, which discuss some background to the recent election uh, before the second round, which Macron, of course, won. Uh, he and his allies, however, did not win uh, in the legislative elections in June, which we didn't have a dedicated episode on. Um, they gained only 42% of the seats in the National Assembly. So um, some of what you're going to hear now is going to be um, a little bit more context to that. George, why don't you tell us who uh, who we're going to be talking to or you're going to be talking to? Uh, yeah, so I'm discussing all of these things and more with Nathan Sperber, who's an independent researcher on political economy based in Paris and the author of a recent piece in American Affairs, Muddling Through in Macronia, How Populism and the Establishment Intertwine. And that's on uh, many things that we discussed, so the political economy of France and the longer term prospects of Macron and Macronia. And listeners should also listen to an episode on the Gilets jaunes back at episode 64. Um, so quite a, a bit of an old one, but some of that, the context, because we do discuss that quite a bit as well. But I hope that uh, people get something out of this interview. So j- just quickly before we do that, you need to explain to people, George, what is a cassoulet? Because I think this is important terminology. Right. Yeah. So um, a cassoulet is a delicious French stew, um, which if listeners haven't made for themselves, you know, go and treat yourself. It's very, I think it's from. It's a white gonna, bean um, stew from, from the I think Southwest. I'm gonna, yeah, it's, I think it is from the. I think it's a, a southern rich uh, dish, and um, this will become uh, relevant for in the context of the uh, of the interview. It, but it, yeah, it, I haven't had one in ages. It's like a feijoada, but, but a white bean feijoada. But I'm a big food, fan. Though. It's peasant. Food, but also <laughs> you say that with such distaste, um, Phil. <laughs> I'm not saying it with distaste, but um, I mean, George said it's very rich, but I mean, it has a lot in it, but it's not, you know, I mean, it's classic kind of um, peasant kind of uh, stew, essentially. And there's different variations in different countries. But also, I just, you know, like our listeners, because um, you need quite a few ingredients to make a cassoulet work. And it might be difficult given the current, you know, mm-hmm. problems that people might be f- confronting with food inflation. So the food, I think, here, I think I'm fra- just <laughs> indicating my, you know, indicating my, the fact that I have concern for the plight of the masses right. and not just kind of, uh, you know, spaffing off about the expensive dishes they can make for themselves. They, they, there is there is a a term in, in French for something which is just fills you up and it, it, it touffe chrétien, um, or it touffe chrétien. I'm, I probably got my accordance wrong there. But anyway, um, it's a, it's a like French, uh, Christian Christian stuffing or stuff, stuff the Christians. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. Anyway, I'm going to stop babbling. Uh, here's George talking to Nathan. So, yeah, just to jump straight in, before we were recording, you were saying that Macron has been talking for a long time that we're facing the, the end of abundance, this kind of uh, the easy times are over. Why is it, why has he been uh, developing this leitmotif for, for such a long time? Well, this is an interesting... Uh, it, it symbolizes the broader change in Macron's rhetoric since his first election in 2017, mm-hmm. uh, in that at the time, most of his discourse was on... a a uh, hopeful, neoliberal, mm-hmm. entrepreneurial note. Um, but at the same time, even at that time, he started um, mentioning occasionally uh, what he called the return of the tragic, <laughs> okay. which will uh, resonate with the viewers of your podcast who are so interested in mm. the issue of history and the end of the end of history. The return of the tragic, as in the return of uh, shortages, geopolitical tension, mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, preparing the population for some kind of uh, unspecified sacrifice mm-hmm. uh, coming up in a new world order. So Macron was occasionally mentioning this before the coronavirus, but nobody really picked it up. And he wasn't um, saying that th- saying this that often. So he was ahead of the times. In a sense, he was he was uh, laying the ground for for something that he would be ready to exploit a lot more after the pandemic, and even more so after the uh, invasion of Ukraine by Russia. Mm. Uh, and as a result of this, this this theme, or this trope, if you will, of uh, coming disorder, return of the tragic, mm-hmm. potential sacrifices, which was a, a more peripheral 
theme in, in his in his discourse before 2020 uh, came in much more center stage now. Okay. Hence the end of abundance. Uh, well, a message. That's his. Um, <clears throat> he can he can sell that um, uh, periodization to the European public, but. I think I prefer the end of the end of history as um, a way to understand our current age, not the uh, age of the end of abundance. Um, but yeah, no. So just, I guess, to to move on to the um, American Affairs article, which is, you know, the main thing we're, we're discussing. Um, you start this off by grouping in um, like these, these the, the dangerous decade, the um, Macron's destruction of the French party system, Brexit and Trump, and this period of... Um, this year between June 2016 and June 2017 as an, an epochal one. So can you just brief, briefly recap for, for listeners, um, how did Macron and his movement, um, his party come to power? Uh, well, he, he came to power um, in uh, 2017 mm-hmm. uh, in, in, uh, in an event that was not only his personal triumph, but it was also at the same time the collapse of the two-party system that had existed in France uh, yeah. since the, the 80s or so, uh, in the sense that for several decades, uh, typically um, power, government, control of government would switch from one party to the next, meaning on the left, the Socialist Party, which yep. had by the mid-80s become very moderate and accommodative with, with capitalism. And on the right, the the various iterations of the historical Gaullist Party that mm-hmm. had been... Uh, created in support of, of de Gaulle uh, uh, more than half a century ago. Um, so th- there was this alternation of power between center-left and center-right for decades. And Macron in 2017, uh, benefiting from, uh, uh, on the one hand, a, a very deep and intensifying discontent within the electorate towards the political status quo, and on the other hand, benefiting from sheer luck yeah. in the sense that the center-left candidate uh, was representing a discredited socialist party after Hollande's presidency, and the center-right candidate was uh, mired in corruption allegations. Hmm. Uh, Macron just swooped in, in a kind of blitzkrieg, yeah. and, uh, and ended up in the second round of the 2017 election against a far-right candidate. He, and from yeah. then on, the lesser of two evils logic applied to most of the electorate that was not, say, ready to uh, cast a vote in support of the far right. Mm-hmm. And Macron became French president in a very sudden event that would be hard to imagine in, say, the US or the UK, where the steady alternation between two parties has, in fact, despite everything, remained incredibly resilient yeah. for a century or so, or even more. So he, he, he saw a gap in the market, showed great entrepreneurialism, get up and go. Exactly. And he, um, he took that opportunity. Um, yeah, I guess so you were, you were sort of talking there about the, the, two, <clears throat> the two main parties uh, having, um, contributing to his, his good luck through their, their various failings. But I mean, do you think this... Would you would you say this is a like a, a broader change in in French politics? This was a moment of the replacement of parties with personalized movements, and this is the you know this is the the new normal for French politics. Uh, yeah, this is this is the the this encapsulates some of the change that has happened in say party politics. Mm-hmm. What is interesting with uh, what happened in twenty seventeen with Macron's election is that France's political sphere was in complete disarray. Uh, Both establishment parties were routed Mm -hmm. and most of their politicians were simply out of the game. A new party came. So party politics in France was completely upended and radically transformed, or if you will, revolutionized. But this revolution was truly confined to the sphere of day-to-day political life or party politics, let us say, uh, without changing that much in the rest of the country. Um, but the way, to come back to your point, the way um, party politics operates in France did did undergo a, an inflection in 2017, not only in the advent of Macron's presidency, but also in the fact that uh, from this point on, it became clear that more individualized, personalized uh, political ventures, yeah. whether you call them parties or movement or personal parties or personal yeah. movements, or charismatic movements um, seem to become more successful uh, 
as compared to um, parties that had existed for a long time were more institutionalized and were not necessarily associated with one charismatic leader at all times, yeah. meaning the Socialist Party and the, and the neo-Gaullist right. These older movements were taken out of the game. In a sense, they, they lost the competition, not only to Macron, but to a new force on the left, which was uh, La France Insoumise, yeah. or uh, Unbowed France, yeah, France. Uh, if you uh, want to translate this, insouciant France, unsubmissive, yeah, non-submissive <laughs> France. Um, yeah. and that movement was also a new kind of political entity that proclaimed, "We are not a party; we are a movement," which was a way, at the same time, to insulate the the top of the party from from a broader militant base, but also to uh, justify the fact that only one individual, in fact. Um, completely represented or or spoke for the movement. Yeah, Mélenchon. Which was, uh, Mélenchon. Yeah, no, it'd be good to get get into the um, into that that particular movement in um, in a bit more detail in in a bit. But I guess the an, another bit of context in in the article before you kind of move into the political economy of it, and also what I think what Macron or Macro, Macronia represents um, is France's long simmering crisis. Um, so what's what? What are the key, the key? I mean, long simmering sounds like a slow, a slow cooked dish. So not to extend the metaphor too much, but what are the main ingredients in this cassoulet of um, disruption and, and crisis? Right, exactly. Well, France is a is a pessimistic society to start with, yeah. and an interesting thing in France, perhaps, which is different to other Western countries, is that the the sense that we as French are um, steeped in crisis is a, a kind of common sense that has become dominant in France, not not in very recent decades, but in fact since the 70s. Yeah. So I remember going in to school in, in France in, in the 90s and our, our history classes would basically tell us that we were, as a country, in a crisis since the oil shock of 1973. Right. And which is can be explained in the fact that uh, French France's economy and growth rates were pretty remarkably high for European countries in the 50s and 60s and then really declined to to a rather tepid economic performance from the 70s onwards mm. with rising unemployment so for this reason the say by the 90s or 2000s France was um considered by, by its own public and by the French electorate itself to be in a very unenviable position of, of poor economic performance mm. and, and long-term crisis. Um, as in our days and our generation is doing worse than the post-war yeah. generation. Um, whereas I suppose in the UK, mm. part of the electorate that would have been more sensitive to Thatcherite discourse would in fact believe that there had been a kind of reinvigoration of the nation in the in the 80s or through Cool Britannia or New Labour or whatever, this sense of hopefulness, however fleeting and um, misguided, uh, never really existed in France so, in the 90s and 2000s. Yeah, so this has the long simmering crisis thing. No, I think it's, an, it's interesting because in, in the UK, there was, a, there was a mid-70s crisis where there wasn't enough... Um, uh, the, the grave diggers were on on strike, and so there were bodies piled up, and there was nobody taking away the the the, the, um, the trash, um, and that was one crisis. Then there was some disagreement between. Um, this is like the, the the stereotypical version of British history that I'm trying to remember from sort of primary school. Then there was some sort of disagreement between Thatcher and the miners um, about something or other, but that didn't really represent a crisis. And then there was the Falklands War, which was which was a, a great. British um, <clears throat> military victory, and then there was Cool Britannia and um, um, and Euro '96. So the the real the story was one of um, endless optimism since the uh, since the mid '70s. So very different to the the pessimistic um, <laughs> French um, French story. Um, but yeah, so just just to bring it, I guess, to the to the present day, the the. the the Gilets Jaunes, who we've talked about a lot in this podcast, and COVID, which we've always, which we've also talked about a lot in this podcast. What's the, um, what's the kind of your take on on these um, additional, more recent layers to the French um, uh, picture and, and self uh, description as a, a nation of crisis? 
Right. Well, the link to the from the say long-term chronic sense of pessimism within the French public since the 1970s and the more recent uh, political upheaval mm-hmm. of the 2010s, such as the Gilets Jaunes, and even in a way Macron's own election, would be the the repercussions of the 2008 financial crisis. Mm. And in this sense, uh, France's crisis uh, became more synchronous in the 2010s with that, uh, with that of other Western countries. Um, so it's, when the uh, 2008 financial crisis came about, the, the most common interpretation in France was that this is, was just a new layer of crisis mm. on top of uh, a very poor situation to begin with. And it is true that uh, things did get worse after 2008 for France, as in other Western European countries, there was a recession. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was some degree of uh, fiscal austerity, not as bad as under Cameron in the UK, but still um, rising unemployment and uh, essentially uh, a complete failure of the political class and of uh, incumbent governments to respond to this in a, in a way different than... Uh, uh, fiscal uh, uh, retrenchment and um, and uh, cutting on redistribution and mm. with very little uh, stimulus. So essentially, growth remained more or less at zero uh, in uh, from the early 2010s to the late 2010s. Mm. And uh, this is the context that explains the widespread discontent against the political class that in turn make sense of Macron's success in 2017. And it is also, it is also the context that explains uh, the Gilets Jaunes, mm. the Yellow Vest protests of, of 2018. So what, um, what's the link there? Just that this is... Um, low growth rates lead to a feeling of um, complete dissatisfaction with the political class, which lead to people putting on yellow vests and, and pr- protesting against increasing fuel costs because there's no faith that the political class have any degree of responsivity responsivity responsiveness whatever to to popular demands right but it, it, people do not protest against growth rates but they protest against the effect mm-hmm. that uh, low growth rates and economic stagnation has on their lives uh, have had on their lives over a certain period of time mm. after which it becomes obvious that their personal prospects and possibly the prospects of their children seem to them very much worse yeah. uh, than what the what experienced the prior generation. And I think this is what you get uh, with the Gilets Jaunes. You get a situation where the national economy hasn't, hasn't been dynamic at all, but more specifically, um, medium-sized towns or small-sized towns that are um, uh, less connected to growth centers, such as large cities, are doing worse than the average yeah. in France, have um, experienced more deindustrialization, which is a, a common story all over Western yeah, Europe, which definitely. has happened in, in France as well. Uh, added to this, um, the fiscal austerity of the 2010s has resulted in broadly a decline in the quantity and quality of public services, and this in yeah. particular in the more remote, uh, less metropolitan areas. Um so high unemployment, deindustrialization, uh, public services that are uh, increasingly in a state of disrepair yeah. with a lowering prov- uh, provision that is on the decline, uh, plus uh, rising costs in the sense that it's true that today inflation is a, is a hot topic. But uh, even during the 2010s, although nominal inflation was low, some costs some types of items are actually yeah. um, experiencing high inflation. Um, whether housing, obviously, where house prices as asset prices go up uh, more than more than wages do, uh, but also prices for uh, whether energy, insurance contracts, maintenance, mm-hmm. uh, those kinds of expenses that are really hard to do without yeah. for, say, uh, the lower middle class. Hmm. Uh, who are the basis of the Gilets Jaunes. And for all of this, this um, you, you ended up with, with a very large number of people in France, let's say the lower middle class and adjacent uh, groups, uh, mostly living outside metropolitan areas that were simply had an understanding of their own situation that was extremely pessimistic yeah. and dark uh, in the sense that they had reached to a, 
a point where they're convinced that everything was going to the worse for the worse for them and for their children yeah and becoming in that they had a sense that their own daily lives was becoming increasingly unsustainable as they saw expenses rise yeah. more than their wages so this is the context for the Shilijuan. yeah so all of these things put together <laughs> basically the um yeah the title of the article muddling through in macronia is it is is that how you pronounce it because obviously this is not a not a word that i'm la macronie la macronie so macronia uh, would be the the english English translation yeah but this is an an english podcast with um um, terrible anglo pronunciation of of any foreign word so yeah what's so macronia uh what is macronia yeah what is macronia Whence Macronia? With the Macronia. So um, the word Macronie in in French, mm-hmm. as in la Macronie, the Macronia, or just yeah. Macronia, uh, is is uh, used enormously in in French political discourse nowadays, and started to be used, I would say, uh, not a long time after Macron's first election in 2017. So the the original meaning for Macronia is a way to uh, denote not only Macron but all his associates, allies. Friends, supporters, people um, who depend on him, and who, if uh, if you if you will, his cronies, his cronies, and the cronies of his cronies, and a broader constellation of people who are, let us say, his power block. So I and think so. Macronia would mean this. It would mean, yeah. uh, and in another meaning that became used in some circle afterwards, Macronia means France under Macron, or the kind of mm. social order uh, that was created in France. For instance, Macron was uh, slapped by a monarchist fringe activist in 2021 yeah. in an incident that was uh, reported. There's, there was a video and, yeah. and so on, because it's not that common for a head of state to be slapped by a member of the general public. And as that uh, fringe uh, monarchist uh, far-right militant slapped Macron, he yelled at him, uh, Abba la Macronie, down with Macronia. <laughs> and the sense, as, as in almost a feudal concept that he was... Slapping the representative of a <laughs> of an order of things that had to be uh, overcome. The state, it's it's him um, in France today. Um, so okay, the I guess the because we've discussed, as I said, the, some of these these topics before, including those the episodes with Chris and and Charles around the time of the French election. But we wanted to take a bit, I guess, of a of a, a longer view and a bit more of a focus on political economy in this in this chat. Um, and the, so you sort of, I guess the essay is framed around addressing two questions. Um, and the first is around the French states um, and the EU's as well, post, post-pandemic embrace of neo-statism. So another way to put this is like, is neoliberalism over? And I think it's fair to say that the hosts of the of this podcast have probably slightly different approaches to, to addressing this um this question but what's your uh what's your take on on this because i guess you talk about um paulo gabaldo's book the great recoil and his approach there is that this is the basically this is the paradigm like neo status protective neo-statism this the states are turning to high um investment and an increased uh, i guess feeling of responsibility um, of towards their citizens and that this is you know not I don't think Paolo necessarily says this is a, a good or a bad political development but just that it's the it's the way in which polities expect at least in Western Europe political claims to be to be made so yeah what's your what's your conclusion about uh, neoliberalism in France is it is it over is it here to stay is it some something in between well um my perspective is that this is a this is an important question and it should be unpacked yeah. in in more than one way, in the sense that is neoliberalism over? Well, you could discuss this at the level of political discourse and rhetoric. Yeah, you can discuss this at the level of policy. What are the policy plans put forward by by mm-hmm. governments? And you can discuss this at the level of prevailing economic structures. Are the pre-existing economic structures still reflective of neoliberalism or not yeah and then after having unpacked it in this way you can unpack it further into different realms of economic policy say Mm -hmm. industrial policy welfare policy trade policy 
and so on. So this is this is a complicated issue, but I think it is an important one. And at least after having unpacked it in this way, the answer for some of the aspects would be yes. And uh, this is also what I try to uh, elaborate on in, in, in the article, is that um, through the pandemic mostly, and through uh, political expediency and, and, and decisions of Macron himself, and broader changes in, in political discourse and atmosphere in society, mm-hmm. uh, somehow the neoliberal rhetoric has uh, kind of quit the scene. Yeah. Uh, which is uh, wor- worth noting. In terms I of agree. policy, some policy initiatives indeed uh, seem to be try to, to trying to move beyond neoliberalism, but they may face obstacles. And at the same time, broader economic structures and socioeconomic institutions remain very much the product of decades of neoliberal restructuring, as you would expect. Absolutely, yeah. So I guess the, just to push you a bit on this, because, and to defend my own (laughs) particular approach to this to a certain extent. Now, I think the point about, you know, political discourse, people stopped talking about uh, the need for austerity and started talking about uh, unlimited quantitative easing pretty quickly around the the time of the, of um, COVID. And I think some people, this led some people to conclude that neoliberalism was over that um, we had uh, managed to find a an agent of history in in the virus which had conquered um, the neoliberals and had is going to produce some new variant, if you will, of, of capitalism. Um, but I think the so Wolfgang Strake's approach is much more to focus on essentially what is the relationship between politics and the economy. And I think in this sense that. Neoliberalism is a process of encasing um, the economy from political decision making. This, in this sense, the the I was going to say the EU when I meant neoliberalism. That's a <clears throat> they're not exactly the same thing, but there's they're obviously related. Um, but in this sense, neoliberalism seems to me to be, if not alive and well, then still like certainly um, not having the last rights read uh, anytime in the immediate future um so yeah basically i guess i just wanted to push on this it's a bit of a rambling question in fact but just wanted to push on this a little bit so what in the french context is there anything to like to add around i guess any changes in political decision making structures any particularly significant policies which are something above and beyond here is a big number on a giant check that's going to Mm. a part of the economy well, my perspective on on this is to say that um, insulating economic policy from, say, democracy mm-hmm. or the potential for mass deliberation and decision is not unique to neoliberalism. Mm. And as such, the concept of neoliberalism ought to be distinct from that as having some kind of policy substance. Yeah. Because uh, you can insulate planning from... Uh, democracy. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can't insulate various types of economic institutional orders from democracy. And I would say that if or to the extent that uh, there is a new status turn mm-hmm. in France or even more broadly in Europe, it looks to be rather well insulated from democratic pressures in yeah. any case. So it, will be, uh, it would be a transformation, a, re- a revision, and partly simply discarding some neoliberal uh, policy recipes. Mm-hmm. But uh, that would still very much be in the hands of, a, of, an, of an elite. And this would be especially so in the case of France, where the, the technocratic elite and the financial ministry in particular would, would be the, the people controlling this. Mm. And, um, and without any political force at the moment, at least being in power that would aim to make this a a broader, more popular, uh, more democratic process. So, I mean, do you think they're going to face any challenges from that, the loss of the neoliberal, like, there is no alternative justification for policy decisions? I mean, so the the way you actually frame it, phrase it in in the article, 
is um, fading away as a guiding paradigm. I mean, that's a question mark in in the in the essay. I mean, if if this like set of arguments or set of um, ways of justifying things is no longer available, is this going to lead to some challenges, um, some greater obstacles in in legitimizing? Um, policy directions well not necessarily it depends what replaces the ret- the yeah. rhetoric um good point there was there's one understanding whereby uh neo-statism uh whether say industrial policy or massive public investment or a greater government control over trade or uh, transnational financial flows that all of this by putting the actions of government a, a bit um making it more interventionist and endowing it with more influence over, say, specific uh, economic activity in a more finer-grained way, all of this makes it, say, ripe for politicization because Mm. the public would see that the state has its hands on the economy to a greater extent, although it always had, but to a greater extent than it had before, and therefore the public uh, would be um, uh, more likely to see economic processes as potentially... Uh, politicized or open to uh, mass mm. intervention. However, uh, I think this is it's not enough to just nurture this hope. The fact is that the precise words and rhetoric that substitute for neoliberalism will, in a way, can preclude uh, democratization of the economy in this mm-hmm. sense. And what I tried to say in the essay is that, and on this point, on the point of rhetoric, not so much policy or, or economic institutions, but on a point of rhetoric, uh, there's really something to uh, Paolo Gerbodo's writing. Um, He puts forward what he calls the master signifiers of sovereignty, protection, and Mm -hmm. control, which are relatively vague, uh, uh, but are increasingly invoked. At least in in the case of France, they're increasingly invoked both by Macron himself, which is a contrast from his Mm. 2017 more neoliberal entrepreneurial uh, persona, and they are invoked as well by opposition political forces, rather left or right, by both establishment parties, uh, those that survive, and anti-establishment actors, and they are also much more present in, in say, media or the broader public discourse. So, in invoking sovereignty, where say, ten or twenty years ago, sovereignty was considered a, a relic, yeah, a fossil-like trope that. Yeah very few political actors would claim for themselves. Now everybody is pro-sovereignty. And so I believe that this kind of rhetoric on sovereignty, protection, will in fact be uh, serve to be the framing of whatever neo-status policy initiative there is. Uh, In relation to a turbulent world, the need to protect uh, and make France more sovereign in a dangerous, turbulent world facing war in Europe, the rise of China, and uh, dangerous viruses, and so on and so forth. And if it is embedded in this kind of rhetoric, um, you can easily imagine that this will, in fact, uh, allow persistent technocratic control over this yeah, and it's, and it's, little it, democratization. It's interesting, right? Because the the justification or the need for sovereignty and control and, and to a lesser extent, well, actually, and equally protection, those three things, they're needed because... France is vulnerable because the French people are vulnerable. It's a it's a vulnerability justification of these things. But of course, in I mean, I'm sure he's not listening to this this podcast. But if he were, I would say to Macron, be just be be careful. These um, concepts, particularly control and sovereignty, can can you know things might get out of hand. You've got to be careful what you what you suggest to people. I mean, in the Brexit context, obviously this this slogan "Take Back Control," which is, was undeniably very powerful. Um, ended up <laughs> unleashing some political forces which um, were very disruptive, to put it mildly, in British politics um, over the course of many years, and had to be then neutralised with a with a, a counter slogan, "Get Brexit Done," which obviously is trying to put the put the genie back in the bottle or the contents of Pandora's box back in the in the box. Neither of which, of course, is possible. Um, but no, I think that's a that's that kind of leads us a bit onto the. I guess the the forces outside of Macron and the you know potential um, anti-establishment um, movements, and I think you know this is the second question in, in the essay, which obviously is related to the first, which is how you know are the are the ruling institutions and incumbent elites 
going to be able to accommodate um, the ascendancy of anti-establishment movements? Um, are they going to be? Uh, are these movements going to allow themselves to be co-opted, or are they, you know, are they willing to um, embrace the more radical aspects potentially of their rhetoric? Are they going to tear the whole the whole system down? So, what? Yeah, who are these? Who are these? Like, who are these actors that I'm alluding to in your view? And what what's your uh, what do you think about their co-optability or their appetite for destruction? To put it in that way. Well, essentially, what I'm trying to do in in this article is also talking about these anti-establishment forces. Mm -hmm. So in the French context, that would be on the right, the Rassemblement National, former Front National or National Front, mm -hmm. the far-right party, led by Marine Le Pen. And on the left, it would be uh, France Insoumise, France Unbowed, led by Jean-Luc Mélenchon. And these two parties existed um, and in fact grew in prominence in the 2010s. But what I'm trying to do in this article is, is move beyond the dominant rhetoric since the 2010s of opposing, say, technocrats to populists or nationalists to populists um, and perhaps think about uh, the potential for more amalgamation or intermingling hmm. between uh, so-called establishment and anti-establishment. Um, so um, the fact is also that whatever has happened in the past decades, uh, election cycle after election cycle, it is true that uh, the vote share, the aggregate vote share of anti-establishment candidates, so yep. these two parties plus an array of, of smaller ones, uh, seems to increase inexorably, in a sense, uh, which of course poses the question of what will happen if whether this anti-establishment left or the anti-establishment right or some kind of alliance... Mm -hmm. um, makes it into uh, government, which is which is a realistic prospect, uh, whether in 22 or later, and whether it takes the form of these two movements or whether these two movements, in fact, mm -hmm. could transform into other movements. The precise actors that will uh, represent this potential breakthrough into, into government is it's uncertain who they will be, but I think it's an important question for the future. And what I suggest is that it will... It will not be a. It would not take the form of a simple collapse or ruin of of the establishment. It would be more a, an uneasy, difficult um, process of co-optation uh, and intermingling between establishment and anti-establishment elements. So a kind of France um, unbowed and on the go kind of um, model, potentially. Um, what what I guess you know because we could talk about either one of these two groups for quite a long time but what's your uh, how would you summarize their like their appeal what are they about the um um I, I yeah so i guess the one particularly sort of interesting question is is how they're um i guess how they how they what are the similarities between france insoumise and um so between Mélenchon and le pen as political actors and between their two their two movements uh well their their political platforms are widely divergent yeah so i do not i really find any prospect for an alliance between the two extremely unlikely yeah um what they share of course is and have always uh shared although it can be seen as as rather superficial is is simply a uh rather vir virulent criticism of incumbent political yeah. elites um, and thereby de facto they both attract uh, sections of the electorate that are the most alienated and mm -hmm. hostile towards uh, the the governing class of France so this obviously they have in common they are, they are very different in origins since the the far right uh, party actually originates in in uh, a group of um, say former Nazi collaborators mm -hmm and nostalgics of French Algeria, whereas the La France Insoumise originates from a, a left-wing splinter group from the Socialist Party. Yeah. They have very little uh, in common in terms of background and political culture. Um, but they do, they do both uh, mobilize and appeal to uh, the sense that uh, the order has to be, the political order has to be radically overturned. Mm. And um, not only overturning 
party political life like Macron did, but over by overturning the political order, also potentially overturning mm. uh, the socioeconomic order. Or, or um, so, so this is what what they what they have uh, in common. Do you think they're equally co-optable? I guess you know this is the question that you sort of um, you know the, the counter elites on the radical left and radical right. Like, are they are they preparing themselves to be co-opted by the system? Are they looking in a, I guess, more opportunistic way to enter the elite rather than to to replace it? Uh, yeah, to enter the elite rather than to to destroy it. Well, uh, I, I think so. I think in an interesting way, both these two forces and also the incumbent elite itself increasingly have to accept the prospect of either one of these forces or other anti-establishment element entering government. Mm -hmm. And this is an important point because often uh, strident and mildly successful uh, populist movements or anti-establishment movements, uh, their reasonable prospects is just getting more votes, whether 5, 10, 15% of the vote share, without ever having to seriously prepare Mm. themselves for governing. Yeah, for 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 actually steering the administrative state, um, which is a formidable task, and um, and this is the point where entering government is becoming realistic, a realistic prospect for for forces such as these. Uh, so this is an interesting change, and I would say that as of now, they are seriously contemplating this. Um, they are contemplating this uh, by also trying to train themselves into how the French administration works, how policy is implemented. They're trying to make contacts or build support networks among high-level civil servants, which yeah. in France are, are a major elite constituency. Yeah. Um, so we, we, might, we might see a process uh, of, of actually these forces... Uh, being inducted into, let us say, the the practice of government, which is very different from uh, the world of electoral politics in which they have solely been evolving. So you mentioned high-level civil servants as an important um, aspect of the French elite, and I actually wanted to just ask you a little bit more about how you you think the French elite could be summarised as being structured. But I I, I just wanted to ask which... which, um, Le Pen or Mélenchon, which which would the your average high level civil servant in France be less uh, comfortable um, with? I would say since most higher civil servants in France would have a, an old, uh, very moderate, sogdem social democratic mm. um, sensibility, uh, a lot of them would find. Uh, working with the far right, extremely loathsome. Hmm. And although they have uh, no sympathy for Mélenchon, they might possibly still prefer him after all. But uh, it will not be those, these will not be the people who choose. They will have to deal with whoever. Yeah, that's, uh, I I guess I was just thinking about the the civil service in in this country and their particular political leanings and um, distastes. And yeah, because I guess it's in, yeah. So to move on to the question I guess the reason, why, part of the reason why I ask that is because your view of the French elite is that this, you know, the French civil service, this is an this is an important pole of the of the um, of the French elite. Yeah. So how do you see this as structured? And also, I mean, do you think this is a is this a case of French exceptionalism? Is this the French um, the universal class, the civil service in in the universal nation of? Um, post-revolutionary France, is this a, a special case that no other country is able to follow? Or is this actually something which, um, you know, in general, we should pay more attention to the to role of the civil service in and high-level civil servants in um, constituting the elite? I'd say both. I, I'd say that the, the civil service, uh, wherever, uh, say, uh, among Western countries, is one part of the elite that is the, that, that uh, the general public is least familiar with. Yeah. And uh, this is not a good thing because uh, even even if con- in countries where they are reputed to be quite weak, as in the United States, mm-hmm. uh, they do in fact play an important role. And especially when they enter into political conflict or disagreement with uh, the nominal heads of the executive, as happened under the Trump presidency. Yeah. So I do believe that 
in terms of understanding elites, um, upper civil servants or administrators uh, are one section of the elite that is uh, too often ignored or, or overlooked. Mm. Uh, now, to come to France, there is, in fact, a French exceptionalism mm -hmm. uh, in the sense that uh, the French uh, higher civil service does uh, follow a, a broader administrative system that endows it with a lot of power, mm -hmm. influence, and autonomy to a greater extent than what exists in the UK and to a very much greater extent to what exists in the US. I think that's an interesting thing if, if to discuss, let's say, the broader sociology of Western elites. Mm -hmm. In a sense, the business classes potentially in different Western countries, are more alike than the administrative classes hmm. of these different countries. Because the corporate form has essentially, essentially overtaken uh, economic life in the globalized West for decades. Yeah. However, uh, legal models and administrative models of government uh, do bear the hallmarks of a, a longer-term history and, and contrast in national traditions of yeah. politics. So in this sense, th there is simply more room for national exceptionalism in the area of administration and, and civil service than in, in other realms. You could also argue that the business elites in general are more networked and outward looking with their, Absolutely. Um, with their business dealings um, and their you know, transnational buy selling, whereas the administrative elites are by their nature much more inward looking, attending to the with the exception of, I guess, foreign offices and um, externally facing civil servants attending to the, the, the challenges and problems of the nation. So, yeah. If that one pole of the elite is civil service and you've got the business elite what's the what's the the place of the um the despised the reviled pmc uh professional managerial class in in french politics because you know you could you could argue that they uh are relatively influential potentially in in some other national contexts what's your what's your take on the pmc in france well if by pmc you refer to uh let us say Uh, urbanized middle classes or upper middle classes that have uh, an outside presence in, uh, say, media, mm -hmm. entertainment, culture, culture, and so on. Broadcasting. These people would be, uh, I would say, a sub-elite in the French context. And although they are definitely very influential in uh, setting the tone of public discourse, um and have an influence on on media discourse or or broader say ideological trends in society i wouldn't see in them a part of the truly incumbent elite they're okay. just under that level okay and as and one thing about them is that they are numerically uh, they do not matter that much in electoral politics so although they control some levers of influence enormously such as the media um the levels of of national level electoral politics they they control less mm. no i think um yeah i think there's there's something something to that idea of a of a, of a sub elite plus possibly in the french context the both the business elite and the administrative elite see themselves as very much above mm. what you would call the pmc and are somehow absorb PMC uh, tropes and notions and agendas to a lesser extent, perhaps, than, say, in the U.S., where the Democratic Party elite is completely open mm. to uh, injections of, of PMC agendas in its own agenda. In France, possibly, the upper reaches of the elite are, are somewhat more insulated. Insulated sociologically or ideologically? Do they have... At just, all levels, I would say. Do, I mean, is this a result of more... Of a, of a more, more hierarchical society, yeah. to be sure. Okay. Interesting, but in, I think to move on to the the final the final part of the discussion, but the the main man um, himself. So, I guess Macron, the you know arguably the the most significant at this at the time we're talking, the most significant politician in in Western Europe. I mean the that's flattering. Um, I said arguably, and um, well, I, I was it would have been Merkel previously, but if you were gonna if you're gonna write um, um something about 
one politician who embodies all of the contradictions of a you know of a central European state and and also has a massive influence on the EU. You know, yeah, he's um he's he's on the short True. list at least. Let's put it this way. Um, but yeah, so he's but he, Perry Anderson and you reference his characterization of Macron as an antibody of the the system. What do you take this to mean? You 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 say he's a neoliberal populist. Like, what's the what is his significance? Is he the the world spirit, um, not on horseback, but in the back of a a chauffeured state car driving through through Paris, avoiding being slapped by the citizenry, or is he a lesser figure? Um, well, it, it, he is. Um, his own trajectory and transformation is symptomatic of a mm. broader change of yes, world historical significance, okay. if, if you will. Wow. I would say that uh, the whole point of well, one of the main points in in, in that article is to start with Macron. Uh, in his 2017 version, meaning an antibody of the system uh, that uh, emerges and blitzkrieg-like takes power by neutralizing uh, whatever populist challenges uh, arose at the time, mm-hmm. uh, or as, say, a neoliberal populist. And it's true that in his early years, Macron had a, had a very a clearly neoliberal policy agenda to the new Macron. Mm. who uh, emerging and transformed uh, often out of transforming himself out of political opportunism in the face of the gilets jaunes, the pandemic, uh, geopolitical turbulences, etc., emerges out of this um, as, a, as a president with who no longer has the same neoliberal optimistic discourse that he once had, who uh, is in fact might be... A, um, a, a transitional figure towards uh, more uh, more introduction of, of anti-establishment mm-hmm. elements in, in the political system. So his own discourse would be itself, and his his own actions would would reveal a, a broader transition. Yeah, uh, that transition would be from neoliberal neoliberalism to something else. That for now at least is no more than a very half-hearted neo-statism, yeah. and at the level of uh, the distribution of power in society would be a form of uh, renewal of, of elite classes by eventually uh, the integration of some counter-elite mm. anti-establishment elements uh, within the, uh, the the ruling groups of society. So the thing with, with Macron is that, in a sense, uh, Macron is, is a brilliant politician. He, he has proved himself to be yeah. a rather brilliant politician and um, actually, just just to sorry to interrupt. Yeah. You, I just wanted to like, ask you about this point because I do remember you, you making this um, argument to me quite a while ago that like you, you know don't underestimate his political um, skill. Is is this the way that he's seen in 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 France, or is he seen as a kind of? Uh, I think there is a tendency often to to kind of. To say, oh, they're all, you know, they're all idiots. There is a yeah. reason why you might say a structural reason why we have low low quality political leaders. But I think it's um, often a little bit too easy to just say, oh, these people have no political skill because you know whatever the whatever um, <clears throat> their very real limitations would be because of often their lack of uh, organic links to to <laughs> social groups of of any sort. Certainly, they can they know how to play the game and they make. Um, their stay must at least be selected to be able to uh, make personal gain out of um, unexpected and challenging situations because that's where they're, that's why they are where they are. Yeah, well, this applies very well to, to Macron. I think uh, Macron, no, is not broadly admired as, as a brilliant political uh, operator in France um, because very often um, people would tend to despise politicians yeah. that they also happen to oppose. So Macron is, is a very unloved figure. Um, however, as, as a political player and as an operator in the, in the political space, he has proven himself to be quite superior to his predecessor Hollande, mm-hmm. who uh, stumbled and, and fell. And in, in destroyed a, his party. Right. Uh, whereas uh, Macron, in fact, has, has been quite 
quite adroit in navigating um, turbulent waters of mm -hmm. French politics, whether the Gilets Jaunes or the pandemic or the the Ukraine uh, war and, and so on. He's he's someone who has allowed himself to uh, swerve to the extent necessary uh, not yeah. to be overtaken by events or to come out of, of crises in a, in a stronger position. However, one reason why he has been able to do this is precisely because he was heading a personalist political movement that would go in whichever new direction hmm. he would set. So... In a sense, everything is more easier is 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 much easier if you are controlling a, a political movement or organization uh, totally, mm -hmm. as opposed to having to please having or make compromises with various factions mm -hmm. or or orientations within your own party, which is obviously what happens in a more established party system like the UK. Yeah. So, I guess to to, to wrap things up um, a little bit, the the future. The future post Macron, or even, you know, the, the his immediate his immediate prospects. It's often, you know, it's, I think it's good to put people on on the spot a little bit. If you have any uh, concrete predictions at this point, anything that you um, you want to go on record saying you think is going to happen or is not going to happen, so that you can prove the doubters and the haters wrong by saying, "Look, I said this." at this point and then we can <clears throat> ask um we can try to re-edit the the uh, interview after it's released if if these get uh, falsified now of course we <clears throat> we wouldn't do that we've you know you've got to stand by your your wrong predictions as as well as your right ones but yeah what do you think are like the future the future holds for this um world historical figure well i i do venture and make predictions in the in yeah. the article which is already putting me on the spot <laughs> to some extent, but it's true. For instance, I am predicting some kind of uh, amalgamation of uh, rising anti-establishment counter-elites with the established elite. I mm. think th this, may, this may very well happen. But as for predicting who or which political force mm. will indeed rise in the upcoming electoral cycle, that's just too hard. It's, it's very uncertain. We just had an, an election in France. Yeah. There is currently a... Uh, hung parliament in the sense that uh, uh, the largest political group is the Macronist group. Mm. Uh, but who knows my, what parliamentary ally alliances might be formed in the upcoming years. One one scenario that is relatively likely and to which I would assign, say, a 50 or 60 percent chance of happening okay. is that uh, Macron will dissolve parliament uh, before the end of the parliamentary term, because the French constitution, which gives a lot of powers to the president, allows the president to dissolve parliament and call for an election whenever uh, he or she uh, wills it. So mm. I suspect that if there is some kind of blockage in parliament going on, mm. or if some political force, say France Insoumise or Rassemblement National, stumble for some reason or other mm. and uh, have a moment of... Uh, being unpopular with the public, uh, Macron could very well try to profit from this moment by dissolving Parliament um, and trying to and, trying to regain his, his right, previous majority. Right. That that may may happen. Mm, okay, I think that I think that's sufficiently specific. I mean, but I mean, yeah, in the in the article, I mean, this is the the major prediction of importance that the you know the, the next stage of French politics looks to be some kind of amalgamation of those anti-establishment actors with some aspect of the current elite which is a i think that's a an interesting like an interesting note to to finish on because it i guess it raises questions in other national contexts as well like what what are the um i guess after the the populist decade or the dangerous decade or whatever what what are the responses going to be of um of elites to the representative of the forces that were dissatisfied that continue to be dissatisfied that would were had been displaying their their anger in the previous decade. But anyway, um, we could continue to talk on on that for for ages. So thanks thanks very much for um, for joining us uh, or joining me uh, this, this afternoon. Well, thanks for having me. Brilliant.